And I think, you know, having moments of, of ever, erotic and gustatory pleasure through eating can can have a really exciting, eye-opening role in, in that, in a sort of speculative political practice. And you can kind of, you know, dream through meals and actually eat them. Hello and welcome to Tender Buttons, a podcast chatting to artists and writers about their process and politics with me, Jessica Andrews, and my co-host, Jack Young. If you'd like to buy any of the books from today's episode, as a listener of the show, you can get a 10% discount by entering Tender Buttons at the Storysmith checkout. You can find them online at storysmithbooks.com or visit them in person on North Street in Bedminster. In this episode, we chat to Rebecca May Johnson. His first book, Small Fires, An Epic in the Kitchen, was published this year by Pushkin Press. She's published essays, reviews and non-fiction with Granta, The Times Literary Supplement and Dort Books, amongst others, and is an editor at the trailblazing food publication, Vittles. We wondered if you might start with a reading for us. I'd love to. I'll begin with a passage from the Hot Red Epic chapter. During my first performance of the recipe... I have a revelation about ingredients or vegetables. They are things. I must learn to watch them closely, ready to accommodate their whims, which are not human. The recipe is a method for responding to things. Things have agency in many directions. Like words, they have histories and contexts. But when I perform the recipe, things become other things in a messier transformation than words in a sentence. They spatter my shirt red. The recipe is a text that can produce spattering because it was spattering before it was language. Language is only a holding pattern for the recipe, not its origin, nor its terminus. Spattering is not mentioned in the recipe. The text does not anticipate the liveliness of the process it describes, which spatters wildly. The substance in the pan trespasses beyond its linguistic boundary, making marks or mark-making on my shirt, the wall, the dry surface of whatever book is close by. There is always more. There is more than has been recorded in the text, and there will be more again. Things will be hotter and redder. There will be spattering. It feels like an apt place to start with a question about the recipe and how you explore it in your book and the work, because it's so central. Yeah. So I wondered if you could first tell us like, of what you see as the radical potential of the recipe and like, its centrality in your work. I guess... This particular recipe um, was something I kept coming back to any time someone asked me what I knew about cooking and or a significant moment for me about cooking and I kept coming back to the recipe and I think what it caused for me which kind of gets to the heart of its radical potential was a was a shift in perspective um, towards that which is not me, other things, things beyond myself to give. And it gave me a method for 
investigating things which aren't myself and for understanding their radical difference and their potential for great abundance that I couldn't know necessarily in, inherently without spending time with things, approaching them, um, allowing them to reveal themselves. And I think this, this recipe be, through, in a way, I mean, it began with the ingredients it specifically refers to, um, but it became in a way a sort of general method beyond that, that, that dish um, to be curious and optimistic about the potential of, of things in the world to be abundant in, in, in unknown riches that I haven't foreseen um, and with, with their own agency as well. Um, yes, and I think because before that, uh, I think I was about 19 when I found the recipe. I, I, think, um, I think it was originally published on the Guardian website in 2006, in January. Um, I sort of had a sort of slightly pessimistic logic of accumulation about cooking where I kept adding things and hoping that that would make things taste of more or become more, but they often became less and tasted of less. And that's because I hadn't sort of sat with the things that I was working with in a sort of respectful way <laughs> and um, attended to their difference. Um, and so it was very exciting uh, when I made it for the first time and it it was a transformative experience. And I, I think that gets to the heart of how recipes can be powerful and that they can give you an insight into both the richness of, of other things, but also of your own potential to intervene and to participate in making things, including the world, you know, sure, a dish, but then maybe other things beyond a dish as well. Yeah, I love the way that you write about the recipe as a text, but especially a kind of living text or so something that is changed by the person who's doing the cooking, something that's also changed by the appetite or the needs and wants of the person that they're cooking for and I wondered if you could just explain a little bit what you mean by that yeah um it's I found it it's an ongoing challenge to think about what recipes and what they are and what they do and what cooking is and the sort of knowledge it is and I have I still changing my mind about stuff all the time but um when I started using or thinking about cooking and the relationship between cooking um, and the recipe as a text uh, through the lens of performance practices, um, I found that really helpful um, because it enabled me to think about the location of the recipe as something which, to go back to the sort of spattering thing, the sort of origins are in a lived performance and its terminus is also an unknown lived performance in the future and the orientation of the recipe towards life through sort of practice a praxis you could say um, I found that very um, exciting and so you know where is a recipe when is a recipe the text is an annotation of, of, of something that's been done and um, when I began to write down all of the times or some fraction of all the times I've made it I realised how much knowledge uh, had been gathered into it through performance, through practice. 
I wonder, bouncing off that, thinking about what you're describing as like these performance acts and like the embodiment of that from a text, like how how this attention that seems to come up a lot in the book and at sometimes like a generative tension is like between language as you're like articulating these different performances, these different recipes. And yeah, I guess it's relationship to the body. So like there's one bit where you write about how the illusion of essentialized gender shattered before you had the language to articulate that. And I thought, and, and that description, I've, there's so many other things in which yeah. I've really felt that myself in my own life where like the, the body arrives at something way before yeah. the language you have to articulate it. I'm just thinking as well about, I feel like a useful uh, thing to bring into that is a bit about, is, is Winnicott as well. Um, that he, yeah, because there can be sort of dynamic resistance to the constraints of language. The body encounters a framework, which could be a theoretical framework about gender, or it could be a recipe. And there's a sort of dynamic resistance uh, or relationship that kind of comes into being through that contact. And I mean, even gender, you know, gender trouble, Judith Butler's text, which I refer to uh, in that bit about aprons and, and, and gender, has transformed through Butler's contact with, you know, theorists in the trans community in particular, and, and Butler's revised the text and revised the introduction and stuff like that. Um, so it's amazing how, you know, inhabiting bodies can demand more of language and demand more of theory. Um, and, and however, articulating things can also be powerful, especially with the realm of the speculative. And, you know, it might be that you, there's a, you know, when in certain circumstances or whatever, you haven't found a way to inhabit certain practice, bodily practices, but the speculation that language can bring into being allows some kind of inhabitation of them, even if in a sort of dream sort of sense. Um, I had a, f I, I just started a teaching job, a sort of fixed term thing at the University of Essex, uh, which is near where I live. And uh, Holly Pester, the poet Holly Pester is one of my colleagues. She's a, a senior lecturer there. And we were having a conversation about recipes. And because I, I feel so much about you know, the need to, to cook a recipe to, in a way to really understand the knowledge it ha it has and can impart. And it's a sort of, it's, um, it, it, you know, you're not going to get the full kind of picture if you don't, in because there's always so much unforeseen that comes into the frame when you do something physically. But um, she was also talking about impossible impossible recipes or speculative recipes or speculative instructions that do some of that work or make things in some kind of way through imagining them or trying to move towards them uh in, this, in that sort of speculative way um which which is really as i said earlier i'm sort of constantly rethinking or you know on, on, on in an ongoing relationship with my thoughts about cooking and stuff um that I really that was just this week she said this and I was like oh yeah uh because I you know I'd become in my own you know we make our own little cul-de-sacs of thought that we then have to get out of again there's another bit where you in the book where you write about Audrey Lord's mother and how mm. she'd taken them on this like incredible picnic I, I've got the details here for example Audrey Lord's 
um, of a refusal to accept like a butter substitute and packs this like amazing picnic. You describe all of that. And you kind of mm. write there about these like prefigurative moments of like another world that could be possible. And so I wondered about, yeah, how meals and picnics or these moments of pleasure offer these like imaginary potentials also? Yeah, um, I'm thinking a lot at the moment about the meal as a sort of fragment or of utopia or a utopian practice or fragments of utopia that you can kind of um, practice in, I suppose, and that you can access in a sort of slightly tangible sense. And I think even in, and, you know, the, keeping the fire of joy and, and, and hope and speculation about the, the future and tending to the body in a way that is different to what the uh, structures of oppression are in, in, in imposing, um, which is, you know, it's so important to have pleasure in your politics because what is life for? You know, a sort of utilitarian politics that forgets about um, pleasure and things, you know, which things that, you know, in erotics, which Lord has written very much about. Um, well, we're not, mach- we're not, I mean, we are, mach- the theories of us as machines and we are hybrid and all those sorts of things, but I just think it's really important to remember why you're alive sometimes. And I think, you know, having moments of, of, if erotic and gustatory pleasure through eating can can have a really exciting eye-opening role in that in a sort of speculative political practice and you can kind of you know dream through meals and actually eat them yeah I've been thinking about the menu as manifesto as a sort of future program for the body and how different menus at different periods in time say something about what society thinks the subject deserves it's like a program for the bloody and and you sit there and contemplate what sort of body am I allowed to have what sort of pleasure am I allowed to have or what life am I allowed to inhabit um and I was very depressed I think it was on Twitter saying this week you know Jamie Oliver talking about punishing his children through inflicting pain on them through food (laughs) this week I found that so stressed, sort of awful. But um, I always think it's so much always in the fantasy of the right to inflict suffering through controlling food of people. You know, oh, take what you're, you're given and you'll be pleased with it. You know, there's always, you know, part of having, accessing the element of being, of our being, that is to do with flavour is so, so sort of profoundly important and intimate. And uh, to interfere with that is very very violent and and everyone has preferences in, in with those things that are to do with that, how they inhabit their body and how they serve their own life and um I went to a talk last week of um Sophie Lewis or was it the week before and no, I think it was last week abolish the family um and she was talking about love as is wanting love as wanting autonomy for, for everyone I can't remember what it is the specific wording I think um on that note you write so brilliantly about um Nigella Lawson and kind of like um the threat she poses or the perceived threat she can pose because of the way she prioritizes pleasure and gives per- people permission to indulge in pleasure it seems like we need permission <laughs> I think we do for lots of different reasons um and you also said she encourages readers to refuse the abjection of their bodies and I think your book does that as well and I wondered it's tied into what you were saying already but if you could kind of define 
kind of like what is it about our bodies that we find abject and why is it important to push back against that oh gosh um what is it about our bodies we find abject that is huge i mean thinking of our bodies as solely existing to be you know productive parts um, in a cog in a capitalist uh, economy that's very abjecting um I suppose, in sort of debasing ourselves through to that sort of extractive uh, function is a very depressing um, burnout, zero hours contract that don't give space for, for rest and pleasure and, and leisure and, and the erosion of things like the lunch hour, for example, which was a sort of, I mean, Marx writes about that in Capital, um, that, he, that was hugely sort of argued over uh, trying to, intrude into the working day to, to to have space for the body to eat and things like that and actually what you know so much of that has been eroded in the sort of neoliberal culture I suppose the healthy worker's body isn't regarded as so sort of central to the success of the economy whereas it might have been in the mid-20th century when the NHS was founded and so I feel like the slipping away of those kind of claims as sort of politically important um is tied up with uh and that's why sort of fighting for the for the importance of the body out with its function as as workers body is so important um and you need to, you know thinking of and uh, uh health outside of productivity pleasure outside of outside of resting in order to work again and all that kind of thing because if models of work change then that you lose that argument and so I think pleasure just on its own basis becomes then a really important, it suddenly becomes illuminated as so politically radical. Yeah, and I think Nigella gives us all these techniques about how to, you know, revere ourselves physically. And I think she has a, a method of double buttering toast um, where you do an initial <laughs> buttering. <laughs> And it melts, and then you have a second buttering, which doesn't melt. And I just like—is that different to butter and peanut butter? Yeah, I mean, she probably had that as another a third buttering. Yeah, yeah, triple the triple. And that she kind of keeps, you know, moving forward the boundaries of what's uh, what what you can claim for your body. And in in, in the episode that I do a little a little note on from watching her TV show Cook Eat Repeat. And she begins with a sort of, she's serving herself pudding and she begins with a corner. And then she looks at you in the camera and she's like, no, I'm not just going to have a corner. I'm going to have another bit. And then she takes a third bit and she keeps sort of progressing into the pudding and sort of realising her true power through her sort of true appetite. And um, something I wrote a bit about in an essay I wrote a few years ago about canteens um, it's this sort of false memory, in a way, of the mid twentieth century. This fix, anyway, a fixation on rationing as our memory of wartime and things like that, rather than thinking about redistribution of food, which is actually what rationing was, and also the fact of these um, sub publicly subsidised canteens, which were serving fifty meals, fifty million meals a week um, by the mid nineteen forties, and so for many aspects of the population so not the middle classes people were having more food than they had maybe historically had before and access to hot meals without having to also perform the domestic labor because that had been produced in a collective kitchen space and 
this sort of collective uh, celebration of austerity and rationing and this sort of weird uh, love of of punishment that the media institutions seem to have, which really is about punishing the working classes. It's not really about punishing themselves, but it's a fantasy of de- deprivation. There's so many fantasies of deprivation in, in the British political media media classes. And um, I think that that gets to the heart of the ab- abjection of the body. No, I was going to ask about the that canteen piece because I absolutely love it and go back to it a lot. And in it, you kind of write about the eating cheap. We kind of talked about it a bit already, but eating cheaply into their full sit, use space, go to the bathroom, etc. So yes, yeah, it seems a lot as well to be about public space or the lack thereof mm. and like what that means and stuff. I, I just, when you were saying that, I was thinking like the closest we have to that now is something like Weatherspoons yeah. and that's like tied up with all of the like worker rights abuses and Tim Martin, you know, yeah. like, like that's the sign of like where we, maybe where we're at in terms of public spaces that are affordable for working class people to go to. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's very, um, it's very depressing. I think I got asked by someone at Navarra, what would be a utopian delivery? <laughs> Though I was a bit slow at responding, so I don't think I don't think they wrote the piece anyway. But for me, there is no utopian delivery. There's because that says that atomization of people into private homes, and actually, it's a collect. You know, it's a, it's a shared space which, and you maybe you have pick up and take away services at this fantasy shared space for people who need food on the go or whatever or take somewhere. But um, it's that loss of space to gather which is so significant and also probably why people don't want lunch hours to happen um i had a residency um last year for a month at the, in, in rome the british school at rome and um, i'd never done a residency before um and that anyway you had all the meals together um in a sort of canteen situation and and everyone everyone talked about their working conditions at lunchtime you know, and then we began talking about the working conditions of the institution we were all doing the residency in, of everyone who worked there. And then it's like, yeah, okay, this is why they don't want people to have collective spaces, municipal spaces, because, and, and you know, I I thought it was so amazing, the images of the Amazon workers in the Tilbury, uh, Tilbury branch, where they had a sort of uh, wildcat sit-in, I think it was. Um, I saw it was covered actually with the amazing Labour correspondent with Navarro. Um, yeah, and it's no coincidence that it was the canteen space that they were all sitting in together. Um, if you don't have spaces of assembly, it's quite hard to assemble and to also not feel just really isolated. I think something I love so much about your writing and actually in the way you speak as well is that how, you know, you're talking about theoretical ideas, but you talk about them in a way that always comes back to the body and bodies in spaces. And I felt that really felt like the heart of the book for me and I think it it felt like in thinking of the recipe as a text and kind of thinking about um the gender associations of a recipe and thinking about how like the body is so often erased from like um the world of academia or theory or kind of like in quotation marks like intellectual work and I loved how your marrying of food and the body like it completely pushes back against that because you're putting you're saying that the body you're saying that like the body comes before the theory and the lived experience is is so essential to understand anything um and I just wondered if that is a philosophy that you're actively thinking about and how you feel about it yeah 
um, I guess we need theory to serve the body, don't we? <laughs> don't know to make it well, vice versa. It's a, in a dynamic relationship. But um, somebody asked me actually for the I did an event uh, to launch the book, and somebody uh, tweeted in a question about, oh, uh, is there any other comparable text you can think of other than the recipe? which has this sort of relationship with repetition and living. And, and I thought of theory, I thought of a theory and philosophy, really, that and political theory and things like that, you know, uh, practice and living, you know, changes those texts. And also thinking about, you know, texts about gender and things like that. You know, we, we read these texts and then we embody them and we change them through our embodiment of them. And we develop our own relationship with those texts through our embodiment of them, which are, always exceed the ability of language to describe them. Or then maybe we need to write another another text and you write another text and, you know, keep annotating what that, you know, theoretically, you know. But, um, yeah, I just... I guess, um, as I kind of write about in the in the prologue, um, that I had always understood there to be like a hard boundary between the kitchen and the library to sort of have those sort of straw men of spaces, so to speak. But um, and I, you know, all the questions that really concern me when I studied, or a lot of the significant questions in my, you know, through my twenties were the relationship between language and the body was it a sort of broken relationship so many you know theorists in the 20th century is like you know when life and when the body passes into language it's this sort of loss or you know language excludes the body or you know there's a sort of um logocentrism or a you know and then post-enlightenment obsession with rationality and objective objectivity and which which becomes very binary and I I had and I found one of the things I found liberating about about Judith Butler was and all reading gender travel was the way that it seemed to sever the link between certain gendered words and my body and which then set, set me free to make myself free from certain essentialized ideas of gender which I was really grateful for. It's like you can you can call me that, but it has no power over me because it, you it's not just not speaking a truth about me. Um, and that was really really great. And I, but then like I I didn't find a way to to re to bring them together on my own term to bring language and the body together on terms that I felt comfortable with or could really understand theoretically, they seem still so odds to from each other for me. And and then it, I was studying this for my PhD, this contemporary rewriting of the Odyssey by a German poet called Barbara Kohler, who very sadly died uh, about a year ago. Um, and she'd oriented this whole epic around Penelope's labour of weaving, Penelope Odysseus, his wife, labour of weaving, and was showing the thinking and the sort of remod new models of temp of time that were emerging through her physical practice of weaving. So how new conceptual models were coming out through her intimate knowledge of this domestic labour, uh, or this gendered labour at the time. Um, and and then I was, you know, I began thinking like, well. 
I'm doing all this cooking. Why have I never tried to think in the kitchen? Like I'm studying this, uh, you know, epic literary text about that, that sort of places weaving at the center of its uh, epistemological, you know, model. Um, but why have I never placed cooking at the center of my thought in my investigations of the relationship between language and the body? And I, then I sort of more I thought about it, I realized that I had been researching the relationship between language and the body or language and material things for years, but not really known it in some way or not really perceived it. I sort of learned to unperceive I'd learned not to perceive what I was doing as knowledge at all and not to pay attention to it and yeah and then I guess it's a really gradual process of trying to pay attention and making multiple failed attempts to find ways to pay attention because I sort of had to find a way to do it I didn't have one available to me that or that felt particularly available to me and um, to try and treat cooking as thinking and it just took a lot of time and different different efforts to do that i wanted to ask about the idea of the epic as obviously it's in the, the title of it and like you say uh your own academic work with the odyssey and things and i guess there's two things that came out of that is the idea of translation and you you reference quite a lot emily wilson's 2017 translation and kind of like certain words like it's almost like an attunement to like what's important you talk a lot about reception why, why was the idea of reception important in thinking about the epic and then how that is important in your own work and writing through the kitchen or, or the things you've been talking about? Yeah, um, so for those who aren't aware of what classical reception is, and I certainly wasn't before I began my PhD because I'm not a classicist. I mean, I studied a modern rewriting of the Odyssey, but I, I wasn't quote-unquote trained in classics before that. Um, reception is about how, or classical reception is a study of how classical texts become transformed through subsequent or beyond the original text, subsequent people's engagement with it, which can be through translation, rewritings, uh, at, you know, cultural attitudes and reviews, um, responses to the text, um, and you know, the Odyssey. Uh, its status, I suppose, as a form of reception of it by culture at large. And I was aware through friends I have who, who are sort of um, radical classicists of colour who are friends that reception studies is something which has really struggled to gain legitimacy in the field of classics and and is often looked down upon as something that is lesser than the reverence towards and study of the quote-unquote original text and this obsession with origins who who is homer really uh lots of archaeologists go on sort of expeditions still to find out this sort of thing and um what's the truest true 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 version of the odyssey text um and Anyway, but its reception is really how it's uh, read, inhabited and changed through subsequent engagements, which can be rewritings, uh, um, 
I've taught before an amazing rewriting of The Odyssey by Susan Laurie Parks, which is set in a slave plantation at the period of the abolition of slavery, for example. Um, I think Radio Ford commissioned loads of new versions of The Odyssey a couple of years ago. Um, Emily Wilson's translation is, is an example of um, reception. And she, she challenges lots of the um, older translations of the text, which you know, 19th and 20th century translations of the text, which just heavily laden with misogyny, which isn't even in Homer's Greek, sort of they added that into it. Wilson also does a lot to point out the fact that the serving women in the Odyssey were enslaved women. So um, pointing out the sort of power structures that had not necessarily been visible because they'd just been described as maids by more recent translations. I found that um, a useful way of thinking about the nature of the knowledge that a recipe is, um, that it, it gains meaning in continued life through its reception, through people's cooking of it, and and also to give credit to people cooking as people who are performing a, a, an act of translation. They are intervening into the tradition of that recipe with their own translation by cooking it. And just as and a translation is um, is very interesting and complicated to think about where authorship lies with regarding translation, um, translators uh, write a new text if, effectively. Um, it's also an again writing, I think um, Kate Briggs describes translation as an again writing. I really feel that people's fear of recipes and their fear of, of translation as somehow being real as a form of authorship links to this sort of reverence again for the original and the true for the true version. And sometimes with regards to cooking, this can be sort of different types of response. One is that, oh, I didn't do anything. I just followed a recipe. It's not it's not me. Or I hate recipes, recipes are shit. Um, and it's almost like recipes are oppressing people in that, uh, in that uh, model. Rather than thinking about it as a sort of form of collective authorship or collective voicing or revoicing or again writing or translation, which, which is neither something which is done as a sort of solo original genius who has no connection to any of the world, but also the collective nature of it doesn't mean that your voice isn't also present because you always are making decisions that change it when you decide, when you, when you cook a recipe, when you intervene and make it anew and you translate it again. So I think that's probably, you know, part of the low, the sort of funny low status of of cooking recipes is this anxiety of authorship and this anxiety of originality which was so maybe it's just British literary culture but really obsessed with um the idea of the genius and and the original and and all that kind of thing but I think it's important as a setup for understanding where you were bringing reception yeah. from and then that's what I found so exciting was like where you took it in the book I think it it gets to why also why recipes are such a sort of democratic form of 
knowledge you know you, you write them or well they're very hard to say or whoever wrote any rest I mean we all participate in this collective writing and rewriting and you know it just you want it to disseminate more and more and and uh, not yeah I don't know a good recipe will be cooked by thousands if not millions of people in different forms and then rewritten and then fragments of it will reside in other recipes and it's a real that sort of world making enterprise I just had a really really nice email from someone um I wrote a sort of a piece for the FT that was a bit a sort of a bit of about the book talking about this a chorus of voices in in the dish from um a leather a leather man and he said uh I like to go to leather bars um I I brought my straight either brother or brother-in-law to the leather bar and he was just expecting it to be lots of really kinky chat but everyone was just talking about recipes in the leather bar and and, and he said to me from a chorus of leather man leather men we thank you um which is like so nice um and also of course recipes are quite kind of sexy because actually you're just thinking about everyone's pleasure this gives me you should make this because it gives me pleasure I want to make this for you because I think it will give you pleasure I mean reading between the lines you know that's what people are really saying I guess it's also a text that holds it holds the potential for so many other people's stories which I guess is what literature should do in its best sense yeah exactly it's I guess it's a real kind of orality in that sense and that people take it on and it becomes their story and just because it's their story doesn't mean it's also not everyone else's story yeah that's what I feel like Winnicott gets so wrong in his appraisal of of the recipe as something which erodes and eliminates all creativity all creative or creativity I think um you also go into the gendered aspects of like being in the kitchen and recipes and cooking and you talk about Silvia Federici you know the critique of sort of unwaged labor like domestic work or like how caring can be a form of unwaged labour, which I think is really important. But I was also interested in the tension about how to cook for someone, even if you have that knowledge, to cook for someone is an act of love and care, even while being aware of the criticisms of that. And I was just wondering, how do you balance that contradiction? Is it a contradiction? Sorry, I'm just asking myself. No, well, is it a contradiction? Um, Because I feel like there's love you've consented to and love you haven't consented to. And in terms of in a sort of heteronormative family model, happiness, I think I said Sarah Ahmed is a is part is work that conceals the work. And I think disentangling the, the work from the love is so important to give you ways to refuse the work, but still have love. So even if I'm not doing this work because I'm not able to, I still I can still love you. Because it's, it's such an emotionally manipulative position to say if you withdraw the labour, you're withdrawing your love, which is a position that many, in particular women, but all sorts of people have been put in that position. Also, you know, people who work in care, you're made to feel, and also I've, I've had that as a, as a precarious lecturer, um, lots of that feels very gendered, you know, hourly paid, like um, love in a in a sort of post-capitalist moment or or love trying to think beyond that sort of bind, I suppose, or um, having disentangled why you're doing something. Because I think sometimes when when things aren't chosen and, and, and the, or the love isn't something you've really consented, or that, that, that labour that's framed as love 
isn't something you've consented to, it's very hard to sort of not do it or to refuse or to go on strike. Yeah, yeah. But then the power structures are made opaque because of this like use of love. In the yeah, exactly. And all sort of even in workplaces, you know, they use like words like family or, you know, my workplace yeah. just to try and use this sort of deceit of, of love language to make people, you know, work for, for, for terrible conditions. So I would never want to stop someone cooking through love for, for, for love out of choice. I should say then that I wrote the second half of the book by hand. I just felt suddenly very entangled in theory and I'd forgotten my body halfway through the book. And there was a sort of monster chapter that I subsequently had to break up into more chapters. Um, and I was like, hey, if I'm trying to write against this like logocentric approach to knowledge, why am I not in the kitchen right now? I'm just sat here reading Roland Barthes and, theory, you know, not cooking and so basically from the Winnicott chapter onwards I wrote it all by hand and I became very and I went into the kitchen and I did the sausage cooking and I I tried to really anchor the moment of writing to the moment of sort of feeling something in my body and then I basically the second half of the book I sort of just transcribed and I'm very minimal minimal editing like how did that feel in terms of the language that came yeah. through from that process I found it so exciting and liberating um I can have very obsessive tendencies sometimes. So like some of the sentences in the first half of the book, I've rewritten at least a hundred times. It also came up to do with accepting the body and its imperfection or whatever it was offering in the moment and and accepting that and recording that became very important to me. And so that's why, you know, I also have, I write about, you know, being fatigued. Um, I write about lying on the sofa and eating frozen pizza for days and not cooking and stuff like that. So, yeah, and um, and thinking about not excluding all those difficult, monst- in a way, monst- you know, monstrous aspects of oneself that one might want to exclude in a sort of weirdly sort of fitter, happier, more productive uh, sort of way of writing the self. Because, you know, I guess I use memoir as a tool of investigation in this book. And so I wanted to document the fact I spent days doing absolutely fuck all, being ill, as well as sitting in the position of in the library or, you know, those other spaces or being super capable of cooking, because often I'm not super capable of cooking. Yeah, that f- that felt really radical in it. The Those moments where it was capturing the, f- the feeling. Ill. I mean, it sounds weird to say radical to capture feeling ill, but, yeah. you know, like the, the, the anti-productivity moments felt quite radical and also quite democratic in terms of you know like books Mm. often or at least like the publishing industry and the stuff around a book can it can seem like oh there's this book which is this like monument and it's like put on a pedestal and stuff but then when you're allowed in on the process within Mm. the book those are the books make me me want to keep writing yeah because it's I'm also obsessed with hearing about how people have written stuff and oh how did you do it and what happened and like literally not really the banal details of I just think it also, yeah, I was going to say, yeah, that's also part of the refusal of the performance of competency and and, and the genderedness around that and, you know, being the happy housewife or whatever, you know. Um, so there's different things that felt really important for me to refuse in the book, you know, refusing normative gender, uh, refusing a performance of joy, all, all sorts of things like that. If you'd like to keep up to date with Tender Buttons, then you can follow us on Twitter and Instagram. You can find Storysmith Books on North Street in Bedminster, Bristol, and we'll put links to all our references on the episode page online. 
We'd also like to thank Ben Vince for allowing us to use his music for our theme. <laughs>